uh, this evening as uh, people have arrived from some from far away, some from Amravati. <laughs> But uh, we're always conscious that uh, there's a great deal of effort that goes into wrapping up one's life and uh, lists of responsibilities in order to come here. So even if you've only moved over from the, uh, the Nuns Vihara uh, uh, to uh, come and spend time here, or they uh, uh, just come from Berkhamsted, then uh, it's uh, appreciated that uh, people are often tired and uh, try not so we try not to make the opening evening go on too long so the the uh, the aim for this evening is uh, Joseph and I will both speak for about uh, 15 or 20 minutes each um, neither of us are very brief in our verbal offerings <laughs> usually so we'll aim for talk to talk for about 20 minutes each and then uh, 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 end the evening with uh, all of the um, community of retreatants uh, determining the uh, refuges and the eight precepts together. Uh, so I'll speak first and uh, offer a few reflections uh, and then hand things over to Joseph. So the, the two of us have done a, a, a sequence of retreats. So the first one we did... Um, Back in 2011 or 12, was on death and dying, just a week-long session. And then the uh, the last one we did in uh, 2014, I think, was uh, on the heavenly messengers, aging, sickness, death, and renunciation. And um, the uh, the theme for this one is uh, seamless well-being. And uh, Basing these uh, this sort of well this quality of well-being or exploring how well-being is related to sila to the precepts and how the precepts in turn are related to what are called uh, the bright protectors the lokapala the guardians of the world uh, called uh, hiri and otapa um, meaning uh, moral sensitivity and uh, the the hearts sense of, uh, of hold, uh, wholesomeness, goodness. Uh, these, uh, this is the aim for this next 10 days, to explore uh, what, what, is, what do we mean by well-being and uh, how is that related to uh, our conduct, our, our way of, of uh, action and speech, and how does this uh, uh, quality, these qualities of hiri and otapa, these uh, guardian Guardians of the world, the loka, pala. Loka means the world, pala means uh, protector. How do these uh, protect the world? What does that mean to protect the world? <coughs> so for uh, uh, myself, considering the, these, these themes and also um, kind of the progression of going from death and dying to the heavenly messengers to, to this as a theme, it's not particularly deliberate, but not entirely coincidental. Uh, uh, one of the themes that I'd like to uh, explore in terms of well-being is that the, the worldly uh, say goal of well-being is never having any illness, always being comfortable, uh, and having no risk uh, 
being fully insured, certain of how, how things are going to be uh, turning out. Um, to uh, even if, even if the body has to age, it, it ages comfortably without any embarrassing and uh, 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 obstructive um, ailments um, and uh, a sense of uh, looking forward to dying in our sleep with a, a minimal loss of faculties when we're about 95. That's the usual sort of, uh, kind of unspoken, but average sense of uh, uh, aim for, for what we think of as, as well-being in society. Uh, being able to think straight, remember the names of your neighbors and your family members. <laughs> to be able to uh, remember where you've left your shoes to um, remember your phone number, other people's phone numbers, to um, uh, be able to uh, move about, to hear, to see clearly, and uh, uh, to digest the food that you like, and um, to have all the energy that you want, whenever you want it, and to be able to sleep soundly at night. These kind of things. Is, uh, maybe you have your own versions of well-being, but these are the kind of uh, images that that come to mind of the worldly sense of of well-being. So uh, uh, I'd like to contrast contrast that with um, the uh, the Buddha's perspective on well-being, and that's more to do with uh, our um, uh, sense of contentment and ease in the heart. So well-being uh, in this respect in in Buddhist practice is not particularly related to the absence of physical illness and not particularly related to the the absence of uh, or the uh, the sort of comfort with the aging process there's a very beautiful discourse um, I think we uh, quoted it with the in the uh, um, in the heavenly messengers uh, retreat those of you who are on that I won't ask you for the the uh, the reference for it. <laughs> But if you recall, when we talked about that, it was a dialogue between the Buddha and Nakula Pitta, who was a, a very old man. And uh, the Buddha had a particularly close relationship with Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata, this elderly couple. And according to the legends, they'd been his parents in 500 previous lifetimes. So he had, even though they weren't his parents in his lifetime as uh, Siddhartha Gautama, they were his parents in previous lives. And... Uh, the uh, Nakula Pitta said, "You know, I'm, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm really, uh, uh, I'm really old and decrepit. You know, my body is really breaking down. It's uncomfortable. Uh, you know, what what advice do you give someone who's in this condition?" And the Buddha uh, essentially said, "Well, you uh, you can't avoid being uh, afflicted in body because you're so old. You know, it just goes with the aging process. Is uh, things break down? That's that's what happens." But you can uh, be, uh, avoid being afflicted in mind. That's what you can do. So uh, in, when we talk about well-being, uh, I'd like to emphasize more the aspect of it of not being afflicted in mind rather than uh, focusing on well-being in terms of never getting ill or being able to cure your sicknesses. Because if you're waiting for the bit on curing your illnesses to come up in this retreat, it probably won't come. <laughs> So that'll probably be a, a bit of a, a disappointing wait if your mind uh, is waiting for that. So I thought I'd be personally be upfront about that in the beginning. 
but uh, so the in terms of well-being, the way I'd like to present it is very much in terms of, of attitude. The quality of well-being is in the attitude of mind that we can cultivate towards our experience of our own physical body, uh, the way the world is, our attitude towards the climate, um, towards uh, the people that we share our lives with, uh, people that we know, people that we, we don't know. So in terms, that's one of the things I'd like to, to sort of uh, uh, introduce or, or clarify from, from the beginning. The, um, the, another thing I'd like to say about sila, when we use the word sila, we think precepts, mostly, no, rules. Uh, am I assuming that too much? No? That when we, we talk about sila, generally the mind goes, oh, that's the rules that we're supposed to keep. And um, that, uh, that they are um, uh, somehow separate or different from the meditation or from wisdom. But one of the great blessings uh, of uh, Lumpur Cha's teaching, and, and Joseph can always speak with a lot more authority than, than I, because I only spent about three weeks in Arjun Cha's company uh, uh, over the, the years, a couple of years I was in Thailand, but uh, Joseph was right at his elbow and at his feet for a, a long, long time and was his uh, attendant and nurse for the last two or three years of, of Lumpur Cha's life. So he has a lot more direct knowledge of Lumpur Cha's teachings. But he, would, uh, he wouldn't divide sila as uh, away from uh, meditation and wisdom, but would, in a way, speak about them as a, an integrated whole. So it's not like you, you practice sila because you're supposed to, because the Buddha tells you to, <laughs> or the, uh, and, and then you, you, uh, you do the meditation as a separate uh, practice. But rather, he would speak of them as, as woven together in a... Uh, in a seamless way, in an integrated way, and that the uh, uh, so the use of sila um, depends upon mindfulness. That you, you, in order to uh, be concerned to li to live skillfully, you have to be paying attention. You have to be ta paying attention to the situation that you're in, the people that you're with, your actions that you're carrying out, um, and uh, and so that it. If there's a concern or a respect for, for for sila and living skillfully, then that increases the the um, the, the quality uh, of mindfulness. That it, it a, um, provides an encouragement, uh, a spur or a support for the development of of mindfulness and an ongoing attention to what you're doing, what you're feeling, and the the mind states, the impulses towards. Uh, acquisition or fear or irritation or desire that it, it helps the mind to be more uh, acutely aware of those qualities and then similarly um, the the meditation supports sila the more that you develop skillful uh, attention the ability to focus and not be lost in your your thoughts your emotions your memories your moods then the easier it is to be aware of what impulses you're experiencing what you're feeling moment by moment so uh, he would point out that you know uh, wisdom supports uh, samadhi samadhi supports sila sila uh, uh, supports samadhi and supports wisdom they they all work together they support each other in a uh, a very equal and f fully integrated way so it's not um, 
that sila is a kind of preliminary practice or a sort of um, uh, w uh, what uh, what you have to do to 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 join the club, you know, to get you know to to get the admitted to the meditation uh, club, but uh, rather they they work together and continually support each other uh, and uh, are interrelated and they're in a way they're they're not separate things they're they're really aspects of the same quality of practicing dhamma, realizing dhamma, and embodying dhamma, being dhamma. Well, one of the things I like to, to say about uh, sila, though, is that uh, the word sila is used for, for two specific, with two specific meanings. So there is the sila that is the sikabada, there's the rules, like you know, precept one, precept two, precept three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. So we do use the word sila to refer to those specific uh, sikabada, or, or, or rules of training. But more importantly, when we... Uh, uh, we talk about sila, and uh, what I'd like to uh, explore or, or to emphasize that sila is not uh, just the, the the rules that are structured in terms of, say, you know, refraining from taking life of a living creature, but uh, more importantly, that the sila is that uh, quality of your own heart, that which loves the good, so that. Uh, there's another Pali word, Gunadhamma, uh, or in the Thai language, Kunatam. And that is what you, would call, you can call virtue, or the, the quality of, of your own heart that delights in goodness, that delights in nobility, that delights in uh, respect for life of others, the property of others, the, the well-being of others. So that's not a rule. <laughs> That's that's a quality. That's a feeling. That's a quality of the heart, and so when we talk about sila and and uh, protecting, the, using the sila, developing sila, it's not just uh, remembering what the rules are and uh, re remembering to keep them all the time, uh, because obedience is one thing, obeying the rule is one thing, but uh, just sort of, okay, that's what the rule is, so you've got to follow it. But the, in a way, the, the root of sila, the, its real sort of source, its origin, is this gunadhamma, the, the, the quality of heart. And it's interesting that the English word obedience comes from the Latin ob audiens, which means to, uh, audiens means to be listening, like audio, like the audio files, the audio recording. So uh, that's the... Uh, uh, the audio, the audiens of, of obedience, and the ob is means complete or full or, or whole. So obedience is to be completely listening. Uh, so it's not just uh, say uh, complying with the the rule. It's not just compliance because uh, that you know the law tells you that you should, but uh, in in a similar way that that. Ob audiens to be completely listening to your heart, to listen to that voice says that, that says, "I don't really need that. It's attractive. I see the advert in the paper, and the, the something in the senses go, ooh, that's interesting. But when you listen to your heart, there's something that says, "Do you really need it? And that's really expensive. <laughs> Can you manage without one? And uh, and so that uh, when we talk about sila or we talk about uh, the development of uh, the practice and the, the quality of hiriyotapa, 
that uh, it's uh, it, and hiryotapa what's what's the the protective quality of of sila and how it functions in our minds uh, is not just an obedience to the rule or being a good rule keeper because uh, you know i can do that <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it's in a sense learning to listen to be listening completely to uh, to have that ob, ob audience to be fully attending to the time the place the situation and listening to that uh, guna dhamma that that uh, virtue of your own heart that in you which uh, which loves uh, harmlessness which loves honesty which doesn't really need anything to be whole the uh, maybe the the um, uh, the last thing to share on this is uh, uh, that I, uh, when I, I was training in Thailand, I was a, a, an anagarika and a novice with uh, Joseph when he was Ajahn Pabakro, the abbot of the International Forest Monastery, Wat Pananachat. And then he trained me for bhikkhu ordination. I took my, my bhikkhu ordination under his guidance as well. So I lived for a couple of years in Thailand and then I, I came to, to England. And uh, forest tradition is famous for being very strict. We're a sort of strict end of an orthodox order. And so you learn to do everything really properly. And Joseph was a really excellent teacher of how to do everything right as a novice, as a monk, and all the appropriate uh, conducts, what you do, what you don't do, how you, how you uh, put your robes on, how you don't put your robes on, how you put your, uh, your, your shoulder bag down, how you don't put your shoulder bag down, <laughs> how, uh, how you do everything. And so, um, and a, a good monk, a, a good nun, is one who uh, uh, does all the things they should do and doesn't do any of the things that they shouldn't do. So I, I ended up leaving Thailand after a couple of years, um, coming to England and being with Ajahn Sumedho. Uh, the, the main trigger for my shift of uh, country was my, my father had a heart attack, so I came back to England after my first reigns as a monk. And ended up with uh, Ajahn Sumedho at, uh, at Chithurst. And um, then uh, I had this very interesting insight uh, early on because um, there was a, 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 a novice monk at, at Chithurst in those days who didn't do a lot of the things he, that he should do and did a lot of the things that he shouldn't do. He was a bad monk, capital B, capital M. And for some amazing reason, Ajahn Sumedho didn't scold him all the time. Uh, the, he was uh, uh, aware that this, this uh, monk had a, a whole range of activities and, and the things that were kind of outside the schedule and, uh, and shouldn't be doing. And I remember one time we, we had to keep a traffic rotor because uh, we were applying for change of use of the property and we had to keep track of all the vehicles that came and went. And so... Uh, certain monks and nuns uh, each day we took it in a rotor to keep track of the cars that came even after the evening puja had started so I was there with my clipboard in the kitchen watching the window and of course everyone else was supposed to be in the shrine room supposed to be meditating and then uh, five to eight um, this monk uh, bad, the bad monk <laughs> walks into the kitchen and <coughs> um, switches the kettle on and I kind of, my jaw drops open, like, what are you doing? Ah, oh, I'm fed up with sitting in there, I thought I'd have a cup of tea. 
So to me, the obedience of the, the, the monk who's obedient and trying to follow all the rules, like, you got fed up and you're going to make a cup of tea? What? But you, you can't do that. You're supposed to be in the shrine room. <laughs> and he was plainly completely indifferent to the concept that he should be in the shrine room. He was utterly, utterly at ease with the fact that he was fed up with the meditation and just wanted a cup of tea instead. So, um, this, and this was a kind of an eye-opener to me, that, uh, and realizing that when, when Ajahn Sumato knew fully well this monk was following a different path, or <laughs> had his own way of doing things, he didn't jump on him and scold him at every opportunity. I mean, he kept the main rules and the main you know, serious uh, observances and so on. But uh, it, was, um, uh, it was really a powerful teaching because uh, here was uh, someone who was not uh, you know, obeying all of the rules, but yet somehow uh, Ajahn Sumedho was able to kind of increase the size of the field <laughs> because he realized this is a horse that needs a big paddock. <laughs> so you put him in a tight little, uh, tight little uh, uh, area, He's just going to kick the fence down and, and run away. So just give this one a bigger field, <laughs> more room to roam in. And I had this powerful insight at that time uh, that uh, up until then, I had assumed that obedience to the form equals good practice. If you obey, and then the more you obey, and the tighter, the more uptight you are, the better. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so being around uh, Lumposumedo at that time was really a marvelous insight because he was in a sense he was being uh, uh, he was encouraging obedience but not just obedience to what was the agreed standard but obedience to uh, the 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 kind of the understanding of the feeling of goodness the feeling of what was appropriate to the time the place the situation and it was striking to me how. I had taken like the strict following of the rule equals sila. That's good sila. That's what you should do. And in the meantime, missing the <laughs> the inner quality, where my mind could easily you know, complain and criticize and say, "You shouldn't be doing that. That's you know, this is right and that's wrong. This is a good practice. That's bad practice." And getting lost in criticism, negativity, and um, judgment, so that. Uh, when we talk about sila, there is, on the one hand, the need to respect <coughs> the qualities of the rules and the standards, the agreed standards. But uh, I would like to encourage uh, us to understand it's not just an obedience to the to the rule, but it's an obedience to that uh, quality of, of goodness. And that uh, uh, we can be a, a good obeyer, <laughs> but have lost that connection with our own feeling of what's beautiful, what's noble, what's what's wholesome. So uh, I'll finish my reflections there for this evening and uh, hand things over to the Joseph. Thank you, Ajahn. That's very... I'd like to begin by expressing my uh, delight at being here. Uh, as Ajahn was saying, it's the third 
such an adventure uh, that we've embarked on together. And I've been bugging quite a few monks for a lot of years that kind of that I was talking about shoulds and shouldn'ts that I should teach with them. And, but I didn't quite put it in that way. I just kind of offered, and even to Lumpur Sumedho, and he said, oh, thank you, Joseph. And he was very sincere about that. But it didn't really come about till I was ready to do that. It's really the bottom line. And so what happened with Ajahn Ramaro, because we have a, a long history, and when he came here to Amarwati, that uh, he became the uh, senior incumbent, the one basically in charge, so um, he could kind of do what he wanted, more or less. <laughs> it's a very special opportunity for me and, and brings great uh, joy uh, and feel uh, you know, honored and uh, a privilege to be able to do this. Uh, it's one of my uh, the most enjoyable and heartfelt things that, uh, that I do. Uh, here especially because of the long-standing uh, connection that I have with the community, the people here, and the love and support that I feel, and the love and support that uh, I do my best to give back. Uh, so, in the way these, uh, the, these uh, things happen is we usually plan like a year in advance, so we kind of few email a little bit back and forth and what uh, themes might be good. And, uh, and then it kind of gets mixed up in my mind, like, well, who came up with what? But not that it really matters, but we come up with a theme, and then we kind of move forward. And, and uh, as it gets closer, I probably get a little more anxious than I am well, what do you think? How should we do it? What should we do? And we got this theme, but it, it always seems to uh, pan out and uh, pull itself together because of our trust in uh, Buddha Dhamma, because of the way that... Uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah, Lumpur Chah taught, and uh, I realize all these years later what a great uh, teaching that is in, in so many ways, but uh, the way he taught was to look inwardly and listen to our hearts and speak from our hearts what we, uh, if we know, to say we know, if we don't know, to say we don't know, and with that to uh, it, 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 uh, raises up the energy to come with full integrity and honesty and which is uh, really speaks very uh, clearly to me and I think there is a heartfelt connection that as human beings when we uh, experience this genuineness and kind of no presumptuousness and I kind of see it as we have modern kind of analogy like we we have you know heart cables and so when my heart and your heart kind of plug into each other, or all of our hearts were all kind of connected, then there's this communication that, uh, that happens quite naturally, and our hearts soften and open. It's very important that, uh, as we come here, that to kind of check our baggage at the door, if possible. And, and what I mean by that is, as we sit here this evening, to reflect in your own heart, uh, to... Why are you, one, why are you here? And the second is, is what do you expect to get? You have, what is the expectation? And then maybe the third is something like, well, what happens if you don't realize that expectation? 
And have you set yourself up with an expectation? Have you set yourself up that it's going to be a certain way? Or how have you, the, the, the attitude that you bring? And I've worked a fair bit over the years with, uh, you know, mostly men in prison. And teaching meditation, mindfulness to men in prison is not always easy. And then the thing we'd always say is like, well, can you suspend judgment about what this is going to be? And so what that means is really kind of putting to one side as best as we can the expectations or the views, the opinions that you and I have about what this is going to be, what it should be, what I would like it to be, all of this kind of uh, self-adding uh, uh, to and, and, and embellishing uh, a certain expectation. And certainly when I do that, I feel that then my heart softens and opens so I can generally begin to listen. Ajahn Chah's instruction on listening was to really to put the, this baggage, if you will, or our views and, and, and soften our heart. And we have an internal tape recorder. And, and, and if our hearts are truly listening, the tape gets turned on. And so we don't have to sit here and think, oh, uh, what did he say or what didn't he say? And what we're saying is going to be, there's going to be repetition. We're going to support each other in what we're saying, how we're saying it and things. But if we turn our heart kind of tape recorder on, or that ability of memory and receptivity, then what is, is I found what is to re be remembered will be remembered. And then what is not to be remembered, maybe it wasn't so important to remember it anyway. Because when we come away with things like that, we'll say, oh, you know, what, well, how was your retreat? Oh, it was wonderful, wonderful retreat. Oh, well, what did you learn? Well, it was a wonderful retreat. And then it's like, well, what did you learn? I, well, it was, it was really wonderful. I was calm, I was quiet, and, and how many wonderfuls before? Because people want to know, well, why, why do you do this? I mean, of the millions of people in this country, here's like 60, 70 of us with staff and everything doing this. And even if we could you know, accommodate a million, we wouldn't fill up a million probably because it's not that popular. And yet... Give yourself credit for being here, for making this effort. And the effort is really what's important, isn't it? And I've made effort. You've made effort. So to you know, maximize, if you will, on your time here to really uh, uh, be present, be open, be honest, and just kind of soften and open. So my encouragement is to soften and open as best as you can because there's going to be some wonderful teachings here. I don't say that boastfully, I know, because when I can put down me and this, you know, lovely man that he's not turned out all right, don't you think? That I you know, brought him into the robes all these years ago and I think he's turned out pretty good. That that the this teaching here or what happens here is as much you as it is myself and Ajahn Amaro. And what I mean by that, if we empty this room, and Ajahn and I sit here together in this empty room, then when we talk to the wall over there, it's not going to be the same. It will absolutely not be. It can't be the same, because the conditions have changed. And so community is so incredibly important. It's what our hearts long for, isn't it? To belong, to, be, to feel meaning, to feel connected. If we listen deeply, it's what, it's what we long for, it's what we wish for, it's what we desire. 
and desire of all desires, if you will, to be connected, to belong, to be a part of something. Yet everything in the world is, is separate, is constantly telling us to have, to hold, to be, to create, to just the list goes on and on, doesn't it? You watch the telly, you watch, you listen to adverts, you see people in there, you know, what's the next thing? On and on and on and on. So we do need a true place of refuge to step back and to uh, bathe ourselves in the beauty of, of truth, of, of integrity, and, and the, the conduct that we live that is absolutely critical to our well-being. There's no, in my mind, there's no if, ands, or buts. There's a direct correlation. Um, some of you may know, a lot of you know, some may not know. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I flew combat helicopters in Vietnam. And I shot at, got shot at, shot down, never got hit in my body, fortunately. And, and I put bullets in people's body that caused them to die. And I'll be talking more about that because it's very important to me because when we start to uh, unpack these precepts and look more closely, well, what does it mean to not hurt, to not harm? What are the different aspects? And, and my, certainly my hope is, to, is to, to unpack them and present them in a way that they start to really see, well, how, how these is, you know, Ajahn's put it is, how do they interrelate with how I live, how I feel? What, how I feel at the end of the day when I put my head on the pillow and what have I done in that day? Can I, do I feel good about what I've done or do I feel bad? If I feel good, then I can reflect on the good. If I feel bad, I can say, okay, this is, these are the things that maybe weren't so skillful. Can I change that? Can I make a difference? And one of the things Ajahn Chah uh, used to say that I, I really love, he said, someone who has embarked on and kind of, and their life has, li been live, has li lived with goodness, has done good for the majority of their life. It's almost impossible, but at least very, very difficult for them not to do good. If someone has lived a life of unskillfulness and bad, it's very hard for them to not follow that habit. It's, po it's absolutely possible. And I've seen it working with, with inmates, men who are incarcerated, you know, veterans and things where they have some very serious issues on, on a lot of different levels. But the effort is tremendous. So for you to be here, reflect on what is the goodness this has brought you. And, oh, you know, you know, English people, oh, well, I'm not really a good person and I don't know I came because... And you know, don't underestimate your own goodness. Don't underestimate what brings you here and and what you may learn by putting down and and, and 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 to be able to embrace more of what this is. I'm very excited about these particular subjects because I will say more later or as the retreat goes on. But these have, have absolutely been critical to my li life over the last 25 years since I left monastic life. And, uh, and I'll share more about that as, uh, as uh, the retreat goes on. So I think it's, a, it's really a rich uh, subject matter. Uh, it's a very profound heart matter. And it's not what most uh, teachers uh, in, in outside of monastic life, and I'm, not, I'm being very general and I admit that, but sila's not usually the first thing that comes up or it's kind of 
put to the side or it's not important or whatever. It's important to sit. It's important to develop deep levels of, of unification and jhana and what have you. And, and that's important. It's absolutely important. But what is it that, what is the foundation of that? What is the foundation that you and I hold in our everyday life? The foundation, and we come to the monastery and we have the five precepts, the eight precepts, and we lift ourselves up. But on the other side of this retreat, we go back to our lives. So what do we go back with? How do we live? And certainly my intention is to help present that my own journey in going from a very uh, a lifestyle that I still love, that I don't, I'm not really capable of living for certain uh, uh, um, limitations that I have, but that I, I hold incredible uh, respect for, and and that without it, uh, we wouldn't be here, would we? Without this monastery, without those that have gone forth and people like ourselves that have supported this, we wouldn't have these wonderful places to come to and to uh, have a, a uh, uh, an embodiment of a teaching that certainly some of us and all of us, whether we consider ourselves Buddhist or half Buddhist or um, kind of want to be Buddhists or you know I might be a Buddhist but I don't like I don't is like isms and so I'll just go along and kind of see what you know the, whatever your your level of commitment or your own mindset is that you're here with this opportunity to uh, to see this. So I, I love what Ajahn said about that we're both rather long-winded. And he says, well, we'll talk for 15 or 20 minutes each. And then right after that, he said, well, then he says, well, we'll talk for 30 minutes each. So I, I, that was a kind of a little, he just kind of slipped that in all of a sudden that 15 or 20 each became 30 each. But I'm not going to take my 30. And I don't know if you took your 30. I, I wasn't keeping time, actually. But. I was under. <laughs> you were under. Right? Very good. Very good. Um, so I know you're tired, and so this this first day, just just chill out, you know, just relax, you know, you you got here, you know, well done, sadhu, anumodana, and you know, acknowledge that you're tired and that you need to, you know to have some rest, uh, but it's not a sleeping retreat, so you know we're going to have a chance to rest and a chance to uh, do formal practice and have chance to meet and greet and talk about this practice and things. So, uh, you know, welcome. Uh, I, 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 this, every time I come back here, something deeper happens. And when I stand on the ground here uh, and walk around, just the history that I have and many of us have with this, uh, this monastery uh, from the beginning years that I was here when it first was established. Uh, and two of my good friends, uh, Kurt Schneider and Steve Saslov, were you know, here in the early days, uh, Massix, I know Rory is here. I'm not, forgive me if I'm missing anybody. And and uh, but you see that the, the the monastics, I think, that really benefited and get it that you see them back here. The ones you don't see, I'm not you know, passing any judgment. But the ones that I see back, there's something that they they still sense. They kind of still want to be plugged into this. It's and that's very very important. Uh, just like I was saying when I started, that we are looking for meaning to belong, to be uh, a, a part of something that's bigger than the me and mine, that's bigger than the the kind of the whirlwind that is life and and mortgages and cars and you know all the rest of it. We all know that, and so I, I feel like I have some authority now after 25 years as a non-monk. 
that I've had my nose rubbed in the world, rubbed in dukkha, rubbed in a lot of things that, that most of them uh, I'm not ashamed of. There's a few maybe that I am. But that the learning and the, the, the learning curve was incredibly steep. And so it's not easy to, to, uh, to divorce, in a sense, this uh, community. But the realization all these years later is I never really left. And I've been, that's been said to me, but my heart had to realize that. And so I realized that I, I never left. You know, I have a, you know, tried to spiff myself up a little this year and got a nice vest to wear. And, and so, a waistcoat, yes, sir, a waistcoat. Yes. I got this nice waistcoat. My lovely wife helped me pick it and a few nice shirts and everything. So I'll dress up in the evening, dress down in the day. And, uh, it was actually kind of inspired by Jack Cornfield. He always wears a vest. I thought, well, the vests are kind of smart. Our waistcoat is very smart. So, yeah. Ajahn even said, well, you left the bottom button unbuttoned. Very good. You know, this is all on the collar. So 